This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Welcome, everyone. Uh, we uh, appreciate you coming on, uh, in the middle of the day for this meeting, uh, joint sponsored with, with proud uh, honor to um, welcome the ambassador. I'm Roland Shu, the assistant director of the Forum on Contemporary Europe at the Freeman Spodi Institute for International Studies, which occupies most of this Romanesque building. And uh, we're very proud to co-sponsor with the Stanford Law School, uh, as well as uh, a great thanks to the Duihua Foundation for um, facilitating this meeting with the ambassador. And I'll turn it over directly to Helen Stacy from the Law School to introduce uh, ambassador. So hello everybody, my name is Helen Stacy. I'm at Stanford Law School and also here at the Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law. Ambassador Mara comes to us today out of a wonderfully productive uh, friendship I've been able to have with uh, John Camp, the Dweha uh, organization, usually devoted to matters Chinese, uh, but through the auspices of John, uh, we've had a series of fabulous speakers here at Stanford, both up at the law school and here. Uh, John, I understand, has uh, been on the human rights circuit generally, uh, coming across people like Professor uh, Ambassador Mara for some time. So uh, we're going to fly to Switzerland today. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you here, Ambassador. You have uh, a history of uh, being importantly involved in the United Nations on behalf of Switzerland. Switzerland was not part of the United Nations for a long time, uh, has now been in the United Nations for over five years. And I'm hoping also Ambassador will speak to us about the United Nations Human Rights Council, which has recently replaced uh, a far more controversial organisation, the Commission for Human Rights. Uh, uh, the Human Rights Council uh, was to have been uncontroversial. You may talk later on about its, its controversy, nevertheless. So, Ambassador, over to you. The usual format is to speak for 30 or 40 minutes and then we'll go straight into Q&A. Thank you very much. Well, thanks a lot. <laughs> Well, thanks are, are mine. It's, uh, of course, a great honor to be here at Stanford for the first time in my life ah. and uh, uh, to, to have an opportunity to talk about uh, Switzerland, the UN, uh, and the Human Rights Council. And as you know, uh, not only at universities, but in particular at the UN, there is nothing like no controversy. <laughs> Everything is controversial. So uh, I look forward and... Uh, I said to John when I ac uh, accepted to come here, I anyway prefer to engage in the conversation. So I didn't prepare sort of this usual speak, speech I will read out to you, but I'll make some rather free comments and, uh, and then I'm quite interested to engage in, into a discussion with you. Uh, one thing I, I think I should do at the beginning uh, is uh, to deal with a parking space problem, I call it. Uh, th there is a parking space problem when you come from Switzerland to the United States, and the problem is measuring size. Uh, 
we we are minuscule and mini cured country, and when you come to the U.S., it's fine. You you manage to get into the parking space very easily. The problem is when you go back to Switzerland, everything is again narrow, and so you have to readapt sizes. So I thought I, I should uh, just uh, to, to put us everybody a little bit in the picture, say something about sizes. I mean, you know we are 50 times smaller than the United States, and uh, we have 40 times less people than the United States, and if you look at the at the ranking of the world, Switzerland is the 120th biggest country or smallest country, uh, as you like, in the world. If you look at population, we are 86th in the world. If you look at trade, we are somehow between 24, 25 largest trading uh, nation in the world. If you look at the donors, as a donor to the United Nations, we are the 14th largest donor to the, to the United Nations. Actually, just between China and Russia, who, by the way, are, as you know, permanent members of the Security Council. Uh, we are, if you only look at development cooperation, human rights, and uh, humanitarian affairs, we are the 10th largest donor uh, to the UN. If you look at finance uh, and our financial market, uh, the Swiss financial market is somewhere between the fifth and seventh largest financial market in the world. If you would look at anti-corruption index, we are the seventh least corrupted country, or perceived as the seventh least corrupted country uh, in the world. If you look at the World Economics Forum competitive index, uh, we are somehow floating between uh, uh, two and four uh, most competitive country in the world. If you look at GDP per capita, it's also somewhere between two and three. And if you look at patents per capita, we have maintained uh, a number one position uh, for, uh, for quite some time now. So this is just uh, to, to tell you uh, I do represent a country which... Uh, in economic, social, scientific achievements have been very much part of the world, but has not necessarily participated in the political institutional framework. And, and therefore, I thought it would be a good thing to look a little bit at, uh, at our achievements and, uh, and limits of achievements over the past five years when finally the Swiss people decided to, to join the UN. Uh, maybe what I should also just mention here at the beginning, Switzerland has always been uh, a European country, but not really a representative of, of Europe. And as in European studies, you know that 60 to 80 percent of our relationships, import, exports, trade, social relations, are connected to Europe. But this also says that uh, an important part of our engagement is, is worldwide, is global. And unless many other European countries, we have always maintained very strong links to other parts of the world. Sao Paulo, uh, at the present moment, and Shanghai belong to those regions with the most dense Swiss investments, not the European economic area. So. Just to give you an example that unlike other countries of similar size in Europe, we have always been 
a very globalized and, and global country and not focused on our European affairs uh, only. You know that the European Union in my country is a, is a, a really controversial issue. I cannot see in a foreseeable future that we will manage to overcome the, po the complicated politics attached to joining the European Union, which are basically the impression of the people that joining the European Union would uh, have major impacts on the institutional fabric, on democracies, decentralized st structures of the country, and also, of course, would be uh, a heavy bill to pay, because would we join the European Union today, we would be the second largest uh, contributor in absolute terms. So you have to have good reasons to join the European Union. So the United Nations has always been seen as different. It's, uh, it's less infringing on sovereignty, on your internal structure, and nevertheless is an important global actor where you can interact on many, uh, on many issues. The interest of joining the United Nations five, five years ago, I think, was also the recognition that in an increasingly globalized world, you defend your interests best in participating in the policies and norm settings at global level. And that's our interest, which we can see in, the, in participating in the United Nations. Many have said the UN is something like the normative infrastructure of globalization, what, what we are working. So we are interested in norm development that as a small country, the rule of law and the organization of norms worldwide is, is a crucial element in defending your interest because if you basically have no power, no military power, then the best you can rely on is a solid institutional and normative framework. So that's the reason why our interest in, in joining and participating in the UN and then, of course, if you are a small country but nevertheless do a lot in international uh, relations in development, human rights, uh, humanitarian cooperation, you see also the opportunity to give weight and clout and profile to what you are doing because you join forces with others and you make your work more meaningful in joining forces with others. So these are just some of the reasons which uh, finally people convinced uh, to be... Uh, that it would be a good thing to, to join the, the United Nations. Looking back over the last five years, I'll just run through a couple of examples in terms of policies, UN operations, institutional reform, uh, partnerships uh, at the UN, where we have been particularly uh, engaged over the, past, uh, over the past few years. I mentioned our humanitarian human rights uh, 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 tradition and I think we came to the recognition in, in the last few years that one of the biggest challenges in a changing international environment was really to rethink and, uh, our foreign policy in terms of how best to protect people from violence and this is basically where we said we have to reshape our traditional humanitarian policy in a more comprehensive human security policies. What was really happening, I mean, we have seen that 
conflicts were transforming. You have, we have seen new actors, new type of actors, new types of conflicts. So we had to reconfigure our traditional humanitarian human rights uh, uh, policy into a more comprehensive human security policy. And the United Nations is an excellent platform. And we did a couple of things at the UN, of course, as always at the UN, always with many, other, with many others uh, together. First and foremost, we started to be uh, very active in the core group on the Mine Ban Treaty and, and, and mine action worldwide. We have created the Geneva Center for Humanitarian Demining, who is now the sort of recognized center of excellence for mine action information worldwide. We have provided the <coughs> st state-of-the-art software for the United Nations in mine actions so that you can run mine detection programs all, all over the world. And we have supported what is called the Geneva Call, which is a, an NGO at Geneva which is engaging with armed non-state actors, which we have as a state difficulties to engage directly. It's the FARC the, uh, in, in Colombia, it's, uh, uh, it's the Tamil Tigers, it's basically all rebels all over the world, and try to engage him to, to renounce to personal, uh, uh, to, 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 to plant uh, personal minds. So we, we tried to run a sort of an official policy at the United Nations, an intergovernmental track, and at the same time to support, on the other hand, engagement with non-state actors. Secondly, we have been pretty active on, on uh, containing small arms and light weapons. We have been here again in the core group of countries working for a program of action to limit the use and transfer of small arms and, and light weapons. We invest a lot at the present moment to streamline development cooperation agencies, including UNDP, in order to focus their programs on reduction of small arms in developing countries. We are just starting now with a, a group of like-minded countries, a, a, another initiative on small arms and development, where we try really to link the sort of program of action which has been agreed by the General Assembly on reducing the use of and transfer of small arms into concrete development cooperation program and, and, and to, to show how the benefit of investing in reduction program can lead into higher development. Maybe looking at a, at a slightly other part of protection uh, uh, of people policies, uh, I would like to mention our engagement on, uh, on the prevention of natural disasters. I mean, uh, Katrina and the tsunami have shown to the world that there is not something like natural disaster which falls upon you and you can't do anything against. Uh, basically, impact of natural disasters have a lot to do on how much you invested beforehand to prevent and to be prepared uh, for, for natural disasters. So, together with the government of Japan, we have spearheaded the UN efforts over the past years for what is called the Yogo Program of Action, which is basically a, an internationally and globally agreed <coughs> platform to invest in disaster preparedness uh, activities. So, here again, it's just one of the examples on the uh, 
how we, we try to look at the broader human security agenda. I should, of course, mention accountability for human rights violation, war crimes, crimes against humanity. We here, again, have been in the core group uh, of the creation of the ICC. We are still amongst the strongest supporters uh, of the International Criminal Court. We have been active also in the, in the special courts in Yugoslavia, in Rwanda, in Sierra Leone. Also, at the present moment, you may know that the chief legal uh, advisor of the Secretary General is a Swiss, and he is very much engaged in trying to find the deal at the present moment uh, for a tribunal in Lebanon de dealing with, uh, uh, with the assassination of, uh, of Hariri. So we have been very much tried to put on the UN agenda the issue of accountability, of institution building for accountability for war crime, crimes against humanities, <coughs> and, and genocide. We have invested a lot in professionalizing uh, peacekeeping training, because as you know, I mean, one of the biggest reputational problems and serious problems of the United Nations peacekeeping operations is, is sexual exploitation by peacekeepers uh, in, in the areas of operation. And together with five, seven other countries, we have been very active to build up a training advocacy program within the United Nations uh, to, to work uh, on, on this uh, scourge of sexual exploitation by UN peacekeepers. This is an area where you may know because of our traditional neutrality we have very few real peacekeeping troops but we are active in, in the training and advocacy on some of, uh, of these crucial areas of problems. On issues of terrorism, here again we took a slightly different line from uh, the United States uh, over the past years. We have been very critical on the war on terror and, uh, and, and we, we thought that terrorism should, have, should be looked at in a much more comprehensive way. And together with, uh, again, a core group of other countries, we were extremely active in putting together a more comprehensive UN anti-terrorism strategy, which has been approved by the General Assembly uh, uh, la by the end of last year, and this strategy clearly goes much more into deterring of terrorism, but also looking at root causes, uh, looking at how to deal with the difficult choice of human rights and fighting, fighting terrorism. We have been instrumental in devising guidelines for uh, police forces, for military forces, on how to deal with the dilemmas of human rights <coughs> in the fight against, uh, against terrorism. In terms of um, maybe just a, a last example, uh, because again of our weak leg in the sort of military peacekeeping at the United Nations, we have more focused on mediation, prevention, transitional justices issue. And we were the ones putting forward the idea of a UN mediation unit and the UN rule of law unit. We have advocated now for two years, assembled groups of friends, interested countries, and finally a uh, 
two weeks ago, uh, the, the, the Secretary General has launched his rule of law unit. Uh, we have for a couple of months been able to have a mediation support unit where in a more systematic way the UN now looks at mediation processes, tries to backstop mediation processes also from bilateral actors, but to build capacities at the United Nations to be able to run prevention of conflict mediation uh, projects more, much more, uh, in a much more sophisticated way. In terms of regional activities, of course, uh, uh, we, we have primarily focused on the Balkans and the Middle East. That's our immediate neighborhood. Uh, that's where refugees come to Switzerland. You may know that uh, the refugees from the Balkan conflicts in the 1990s represent today almost 500,000 uh, people uh, in Switzerland. We have the largest Kosovar communities uh, uh, in Europe. More than 200,000 Kosovars live in Switzerland, more than 150,000 Croats, 150,000 Serbs. So the Balkan Wars have in part taken place in our streets and uh, uh, on, in our society and this made us keep a very active engagement in all UN and non-UN uh, activities in the Balkans trying to stabilize by humanitarian program, human rights program, mediation program, behind the scenes mediation between, uh, between the different parties. In terms of operations uh, at the United Nations, here again I think the big change between not being a member of the UN and being a member of the UN is that we do pay a lot in UN operation, be it development, uh, uh, be it uh, environment, human rights operations, but now we are sitting on the boards of the funds and programs. So it forces you to take positions on on programs, on, on, on priorities, and this has been definitely the biggest, the biggest challenge. As I said, we are the 14th largest contributor to the UN system in absolute terms. This is a lot of money for the Swiss taxpayers, so a lot of my energy goes into looking at development cooperation programs and looking how to orient them. And here again, we tried to bring some of those human security protection programs into the development cooperation activities and to have not only policy talk but have real impact impact on the ground. And I think there is no secret that in in those development cooperation programs you have you have big tensions at the present moment on how far and where and when you 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 go to engage the United Nations on what issues. And uh, I've just been talking uh, beforehand uh, on North Korea. This was sort of the biggest issue over the past few months uh, in the board of, of UNDP. Where do you think are the conditions under which you want the United Nations work in a country? And Switzerland, of course, has by its tradition always had the sort of approach to go very far and very long in engagement and not to create an artificial cut-off uh, uh, cut criteria and say this is just too bad, we can't work 
in in that country because it's uh, it's just too corrupt. It's too controlled. We don't get the space. So, contrary to other countries, we have till the last moment expressed uh, our view in 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 UNDP that the United Nations should keep engaged in North Korea, North Korea, not at any price, not under any conditions, but that engagement would lead to transformation and by engagement we would and development we would eventually be able to influence uh, the regime. But this is clearly one uh, issue uh, we, we badly lost over uh, over the past few months because I mean the overwhelming pressure from other countries have has been bigger, so we we remain one of the few countries having a bilateral representation in North Korea and the bilateral program, uh, which we are intent to continue. But this is a good example in operations, just to tell you what kind of of politics and dilemmas uh, uh, you are confronted with uh, in in operational activities. I mentioned institutional reform. Uh, this was a big issue uh, for us over the past five years at the UN because uh, very similar to this country, I mean, <clears throat> the Swiss do not naturally like the United Nations and multilateralism. Them as a sort of a reflex uh, to, to, to think this is a good thing. So when we campaign for UN membership and also in the whole political fabric of the country, you get a lot of skeptical feedback. You have to be accountable of what you are doing and trying to do best to make the UN work as efficiently as effectively as possible. And the Swiss look at uh, the UN also as, as an organization where they have taxpayers' money and therefore they want to see results for investment. And uh, this is basically the mentality. But I think the positive thing about this is that we tried to transform this pressure into meaningful reform projects at the United Nations. And the Human Rights Council uh, is, is certainly uh, one of the areas uh, on which we have focused a lot over the past two years. Uh, everybody knows about the difficulties of the human, uh, human rights, of the Commission on Human Rights, which basically had sterile debates with uh, little impact and a lot of politicking without real policy discussions going on. And so we tried, together with, again, with other countries, to shape the discussion on transforming the Human Rights Commission into a more meaningful Human Rights Council. And what we actually were looking for was not just a new institution, but it was a new approach to human rights because we basically came to the conclusion that the, the core problem of the Human Rights Commission was the kind of naming and shaming exclusive approach where you try to put countries on spot without having follow it by any meaningful other action. So we thought we have to have a much more meaningful dialogue-oriented way in looking at human rights. There are only always those who are willing but unable, and there are always those who, who are unwilling. So we said we can't 
base an institution fundamentally on the unwilling. But let's have a look at the large part of countries who basically are willing but maybe not really able to have strong human rights policies and therefore design an international and multilateral institution in a way as it would be able to support in a more meaningful way uh, those who, who would be willing. And we tried then to shape a more sort of efficient, effective human rights machinery. Of course this is difficult because human rights is one of the most controversial issues. But I mean key areas we tried to make the council a little bit smaller. We tried to have a little bit a better quality of membership in, in having uh, a qualified majority to get on the council. We have had in the resolution created, creating the Human Rights Council the institution of pledges. The one every country going on the Human Rights Council at election has to offer pledges on what he wants to do at the council. Of course this is not a tribunal on which you would be judged, but at least you are forced to publicly say what you are going to do during your term at the Human Rights Council. We have created a, a council which is able to address human rights over the year, not only during a <coughs> couple of weeks in spring, but the council is able to meet now during the year and effectively has met uh, m even more than was foreseen uh, by, uh, by the resolution. So some progress has happened, but at the same time, of course, it shows you the limit of progress because uh, you, you cannot create a new institution and hope that this, will, this institution mm -hmm. will sail into easy waters and, and then human rights will, will develop easily. So at the moment where the Human Rights Council was, uh, had its first meeting, two weeks later uh, Israel went into Lebanon. We had again the sort of whole Western Islamic controversy infecting all multilateral instances. Uh, the Islamic states were mobilizing uh, their constituency, the developing countries, in order to bring the Middle East again top on the agenda of, uh, of the Human Rights Council. The United States and Israel, uh, of course, rather delusioned by the fact that the first special session of the Human Rights Council was about uh, Israeli invasion into Lebanon and not about Myanmar or, or, or Zimbabwe. So the Human Rights Council had a, a tough start against politics which just are beyond the sort of institutional possibilities and frameworks. We, we never had a chance to start easy at the beginning and to try out cooperative uh, formulas to, to, to see whether eventually what we had planned for we could have as a first stage maybe a resolution or a session on Sri Lanka or, or Nepal where the governments were ready to discuss and then we could stage a more consensual way in dealing with human rights. So Lebanon just landed on, on the Human Rights Council and has poisoned the atmosphere on institutional development considerably. 
Nevertheless, I would say we have managed now over the month to, together with many other countries, to again gain ground and, and try to bring a meaningful institutional compromise on the table. And as we speak, I think this is really the most crucial phase now of final negotiations of the functioning and working methods of the Human Rights Council, which is negotiated at the present moment in Geneva. And the deadline for the negotiation is the 18th of June. And on the 18th of June, we will see whether we have achieved to have a good universal periodic review, whether we have strong uh, special advisors and mandates. So we are very much in limbo at the present moment whether we will really achieve to do that. Now, how, what is the best guarantee of having some successes uh, in, in trying to move a good institution forward? With the Human Rights Council and with many other issues, I think the crucial area where we, we try to be active as Swiss is really what I would call trans-regional alliances. I think the UN and the multilateralism has been poisoned by regional alliances which would somehow ensure automatic positions and, uh, and voting patterns at the United Nations. And you can't really run an organization, neither on human rights or on any other issue, if you basically have group mechanisms and dynamics work as they work at the United Nations, where at the end of the day, the G77 NAM have the majority of voting on a resolution and 15 other countries pay the bill for the organization. Uh, so this, this is basically not working as an institutional setup. So what we are looking in is can we transform the way of working at the UN, in particular on those delicate issues in looking for trans-regional alliances. And this was the reason why we had a pretty good resolution on the Human Rights Council, because we were looking to build an alliance between Chile, Argentina, Brazil, Costa Rica, and Latin America. We had Mali, uh, we had Tanzania, uh, we had South Africa as African part of the group of friends. Uh, we, we had Korea, Japan, Thailand, the Philippines in the group of friends from Asia. We had Slovenia, some Baltic, Baltic states in the group of friends. So we gathered informally a group of friends to, to try to hammer out compromises on some of the open issues. And then each and every one of us go back to those regional groups. And the, the, the political dynamics uh, are interesting because we can't really try to change fundamentally the decision-making of the regional group. But what we achieved is blocking consensus in the regional group. So uh, we actually uh, said, in, in regional group positions, so we, we are not going down uh, a maximalist uh, uh, European position. We, we just disagree. Uh, so we, we tried to, to basically, whenever 
an issue and a proposal was against our trans-regional platform, we tried to block the consensus and so to move countries towards such trans-regional platforms. And I believe this, this is really the interesting dynamics uh, of politics. And then I think if you have those small and medium countries trying to cover the middle ground, one of the big issues is, of course, what do we do with the big elephants? I mean, <laughs> the United States, China, uh, Russia. And, and here again, it's interesting how uh, the dynamics over the past couple of years have unfolded. Uh, China has become an extremely interesting player in multilateral affairs and, and actually crucial to the consensus on the Human Rights Council. I mean, you probably wouldn't believe, but uh, I would say the, the Chinese have been much more instrumental in giving us indication what they would be ready to go along, where they would be ready to carry a compromise, uh, to play the game, to use their influence uh, again uh, in, in supporting the consensus while not really being part uh, of any group but, but, but working for, for the middle ground, allowing space to, to others to do things. Uh, the Russians, uh, the same. They, they have been very helpful in in clarifying from the beginning behind the scenes, you can do A, B, C, that's fine, my red line is here. So uh, you know where the space is and then you can try to, to, operate, uh, to operate the middle ground. And as you know, my friend John Bolton has been a little bit more difficult <laughs> than, uh, <laughs> in, in some of these areas. But I, I just went a little bit more into details of the Human Rights Council, just to explain to you also what, what is the attitude with which uh, we, we go into, into UN work and UN cooperation. Let me just uh, uh, say if, uh, a few final things uh, which might be interesting for you here at Stanford University. Because of our profile of a country trying somehow to build bridges to cover the middle ground. We have had over the past five years increasingly strong cooperation with scientific institutions because actually what the A and O of successful multilateral work is, is good knowledge input into the political process. So what we actually try to do is mobilize scientific applied research work and have it injected into political process. The Human Rights Council, we presented uh, Professor Kellyn's uh, University of Bern studies on option, options on reforming the human rights institution. And we presented it to all delegations. We had an informal process which has been very instrumental in forging compromise on, on, uh, on the Human Rights Council. I mentioned that a scientific project with the University of Zurich led to the information management system on mine action. We have in Geneva the small arms survey, which is, which is basically the state-of-the-art uh, university publication, which is de facto the secretariat of the intergovernmental process on, on small arms reduction. I mean, 
the UN Secretariat has no knowledge about snow, small arms. They, they neither have the capacity nor the knowledge. They just tap into the small arms service in order uh, to, to bring in, to, uh, knowledge into the political process. We have had a Harvard program on humanitarian policy and conflict research with which we have explored and developed some of the crucial dilemmas in humanitarian action and humanitarian law and new types of conflict. So we have done a lot over the past years to reach out to scientific communities and to try to bring good knowledge, good information into the political process because at the end of the day, if you are a small country again with no major power possibilities, the best you can do is trying to inject reasonable uh, basis for discussion. You, my, you may not win uh, at the end of the day the political process, but you might move it for a couple of times in the right direction. So we have, uh, we, we have done uh, quite, uh, quite a lot of that. So I, I would suggest that I, I, I stop here and give you the opportunity right. for Q&A. All right. Thank you so much, Ambassador. I'm going to kick off with a question about uh, the intersection of human rights and the war on terror. At least as, at least as we are coming to read in the newspapers, uh, human rights and the war on terror seem to be breaking out uh, in, in this sort of way. The question is, is there a part of the world that, uh, under Sharia law, just doesn't believe in international human rights because they base their rationale for government authority in something unlike Western understandings of, of human rights? What's Switzerland's approach to this? You've got immigrants uh, now that you didn't have before, immigrants that come from other cultures and other religions. Uh, and what's Switzerland's approach on the UN Human Rights Council? Council? What's, can, can you say something about how the West and the non-Western parts of the world are going to bridge this difference about religion and human rights? And I'll also keep a list for questions. Well, thanks a lot. I mean, uh, th there are s several answers, of course, to, to, to your question. I mean, there is no doubt that uh, migration and Islamic migration into Switzerland uh, and into Europe and into all other society will cause frictions in society and will lead to controversy, which we have as we uh, as we have this controversy in, in, in many in, in many other countries. So building a mosque in the city of Bern is as controversial as it is in in, in, in other countries. So there is the 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 level of uh, uh, the sort of immediate reaction uh, by by populations, and this can get ideological, mm -hmm. uh, ideologically exploited. I mean, our position is really that there there are universal human rights, but 
at the same time we know that no, I mean, no rights are absolute, and you have to allow for uh, one right towards the other right mm -hmm. to, to 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 discuss in the process. And I think this is very much uh, what is debated at the present moment. I think uh, uh, policies and courts have to find a, a, a way forward in trying to find concrete, concrete solution. I mean, our basic approach has always been much more on acceptance of diversity mm -hmm. than of pretending the universality as, uh, and uniformity of human rights as such. But there is a delicate, there is a, uh, there is a delicate balance. I mean, we, in our doctrine, we promote universal human rights, but at the same time, we know that this doesn't mean the same thing in, e in each and every country. Mm -hmm. So there are trade-offs and, and concretization of rights which look different. And therefore, in in our foreign policy, of course, we have been much more inclined to to dialogue and debate, and my, I mean not dialogue in in a sense of giving in your values in discussing with the others, but just trying to figure out where the common basis is are and where the issues of divergences are, mm -hmm. and 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 that's the reason why over the past years we we invested a lot in in dialogues, uh, I mean, we have a human rights dialogue with Iran, mm -hmm. uh, we have human rights dialogues with, uh, with uh, China, uh, with many difficult countries in, 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 one form, in, in one form or the other. And I think one funda I, I would fundamentally uh, disagree with the opinion that there is a whole part of the world who has n n no connections to our understanding of human rights. There is, a, there is a common basis. You have to find it. You have eventually to clarify what exactly it means. Uh, you have to be able to, to interpret and to shape human rights according to the real human rights problems on the ground. And they, they look differently whether you are in Zurich or Mali or uh, or, or the Gulf or or in China or or, or wherever. So, so let me press you on that. In Switzerland, if an immigrant family wants to keep their fourteen-year-old daughter at home from school, what would what would the Swiss response be? Yeah, the Swiss response would uh, would be that she has to get. Uh, uh, she has to get schooling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Swiss law yeah. won't negotiate <coughs> on yeah. on that, no. no matter. No, uh, not on schooling. Uh, we we for instance we have ne we have different practices uh, on uh, on the chador. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This ha has been a, uh, quite a rift in in the country. Because of the decentralized character of the country, you get different political uh, responses. But I mean, by and large, I mean the, the the foreign minister who is a woman has been very strongly in in sort of uh, accepting whatever the women want like to look mm -hmm. and, and come to the public space. So mm -hmm. she has been a strong advocate on 
not having any uh, prohibitions on the wearing of the chador. Uh, but we have problems on, on interpretation on some local levels. Okay, so it's, it, it's, a delicate, it's a delicate balance. Huh? All right, Christine? <coughs> I mean, the, the Abacha's example has indeed been uh, uh, quite an interesting one. And uh, I mean, what I can say at the present moment is that politically, the government is, is more than ready to do more of Abacha examples in the future. I mean, it was a tough sell. I mean, for those who, who are not very familiar, I mean, we, we had uh, uh, basically uh, the hundreds of millions of... Uh, uh, of Abacha in on, on Swiss banks accounts and uh, we we blocked them at a certain stage and when the new democratic government uh, uh, took over we negotiated a framework of restitution and uh, uh, of of the money uh, to to Nigeria with uh, uh, with uh, World Bank supervision uh, in development programs so uh, this has been a, has been seen as a very innovative approach and I mean we we are certainly interested uh, uh, in in the World Bank at the present moment because I think this is a has been now a, a sort of a, a good practice and example uh, move to to do more uh, of those examples uh, uh, in, in the future but do you see any other countries uh, talking the same approach I know that uh, millions of dollars are still stuck in uh Well, I mean, we would hope that it is, and we, we do have a, uh, in, in the Financial Action Task Force, we, uh, we have promoted the sort of Abacha examples for others as well. Whether it is followed or not, uh, uh, we, we will see. I mean, it's after all the decision uh, of other countries. I mean, I, I can't imagine a situation where you can uh, just by an international body force countries to go into such projects, so they have to understand to, to embark on such policies. I mean, it's one of the good examples, very frankly, where we we sometimes feel there is a is a huge discrepancy between 
the portrayal of our financial centers and practices and some of what what others are doing and uh, and uh, I, I think we, we just have to live with the fact that the, at the present moment that no other countries has restituted any money uh, the Abacha and the Duvalier money and some others we have restituted is, is the only example you mm -hmm. find at the present moment mm -hmm. and I agree that uh, th there are many other offshore centers including uh, uh, the Canal Islands and uh, and others who who basically do financial services which uh, would not be any longer compatible with uh, either European or, or global standards. Yes, Ambassador. Yes, uh, being uh, not from law school or physical science, but being from business school and engineering school, I I believe in something called I call it Coke model because I found out traveling around uh, the people who can who can uh, be able to drink Coke, right? Uh, for example, has a, a lot more favorite opinion toward the United States or toward the value of the United States represented. And the people who, like, like even like in China, the region who, you know, can easily access to Coke or hamburgers, right? Like like, like a McDonald's, somehow, somewhat has a far more favorable opinions toward uh, the United States and also the the value of the United States, really, like uh, like a democracy, right? And the people who, in some regions won't be able to access those that will have a much harsh um, opinions toward. So in my view is that the trade um, and the commer and com commercial trade will eventually, um, that's my firm belief, will eventually improve the human right or democracy um, much better way than through through um, UN or whatever other bureaucracy. Uh, well, it's what do you bit, think about this? Yeah, it, it, you see, I mean, uh, there, there has always to be more than just one. I, I think we, we know in the meantime that neither economic growth nor trade as such will immediately and automatically lead to democracy uh, and freedom. It's, uh, it's just simply not happening that way. Uh, I mean, the inconsistencies with the thesis uh, are, are, are too, too, too obvious. But on the other hand, we also know that uh, democracy and human rights have difficulties developing if there, are substantive, if there is substantive underdevelopment. Uh, because then there are other pressures on societies uh, which make it difficult to uh, to implement uh, human rights in, in its fullest. So uh, I think there is there is a good point advocating for trade, globalization, economic growth, sustainable development, but there is also a good case to to advocate for for an international organization which can advise helps uh, look at best practices uh, in terms of institution building in terms of norm development 
to, to see what works and what what does not work to to advise consult countries if this is done in in a subtle and non-patronizing way uh, this is something and the multilateral fora is is the best guarantee to have it subtle and non-patronizing then th this is quite a promising approach I mean you have to combine both areas. Uh, I really believe uh, we we have to to think multi-functional, multipolar. There is not only one reason leading to one result and one way. Uh, and I think well done and uh, and done in a sophisticated way. Uh, it's difficult to imagine what the world would look like without uh, having some agreements on policies and without having some legitimate organization uh, helping, supporting countries in their uh, development, peace, human rights, uh, sustainability efforts. I, I think uh, if you travel around, uh, not only the governments, but the people would tell you that it is good to have the UN in a country. And I think the question is really, you see, is, is at the end of the day legitimacy. What the UN <coughs> does compared to others is not that it does automatically things better, uh, but it is a, a legitimate authority because it somehow represents all of us and not only one. It's not so interesting. So, John? I want to follow up on the first question a little bit. You mentioned dialogue between, I don't know whether it was the West and Iran and China or Switzerland and Iran and China and human rights issues. Uh, it seems to me that a fair chunk of the dialogue ought to be between Christianity and Judaism and Islam, but perhaps between Sunnis and Shiites. Uh, I guess I'm wondering how much you see that as a need and whether or not there is an, an, an appropriate role, because there's obviously some risks in, in any way the governments get involved in this, governments or the UN. I guess I'm wondering you know, your thoughts on how that kind of dialogue can be fostered and encouraged and whether or not it can be done, whether or not the UN has any kind of role on this. Yeah, I think... <coughs> The UN can have a role as a platform, but governments must be extremely careful to get involved in interreligious uh, value dialogues because, I mean, what, what you can do and has increasingly been done since, uh, and Kofi Allen has promoted this quite considerably, is offering the UN as a space to debate these issues because it's, again, a legitimate venue on which you can discuss. But then you have to open the house not for intergovernmental discourse, but you have to open it for other stakeholders. <laughs> and I think this is something, again, where uh, we tried to be quite active over the past few years, not to consider and conceptualize the UN only <coughs> as an intergovernmental organization. If we are serious about globalization, then this is multi-stakeholder, and then 
this is a meeting place for governments, for society, for civil, organized civil society, for religions, for business communities, and we have to find formats and in, in which we bring those actors together. That's the reason why we have been so active in this process called uh, alliance of civilization, whatever you call it. Uh, the expressions are always difficult, but trying to bring interreligious dialogue to the General Assembly Hall and, 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 and not by a state representative but by religious leader or why we supported uh, Kofi Annan's Global Compact looking in corporate social responsibility issues and have major global firms come to meet at the UN and see what can the private sector do in order to promote UN values and what can the UN do in order to promote economic development. It's uh, very much the discourse we have. So uh, I see, uh, uh, of course, we have an extreme reluctance to, uh, but when it comes to religion, it's, it's double sensitive. You, you have to be extremely careful to, to have governments sit at the table and discuss religion. This is probably a recipe for disaster. <laughs> Can I ask a, a follow-up question from the other end of the world? Um, scientific advice. One of the things that worries me is the political inputs to the IPCC kinds of statements on the uh, on scientific issues on climate change. Um, do you see you know, any alternatives to something like the IPCC process? Any way of getting what most of us would regard as more sound scientific advice of the type that we can get from the National Academy of Sciences at the national level? Well, you see, my fear is that with IPCC it's as good as it gets. We know that uh, it, it's, it's maybe not complete, as good as it would be if it would be really free. Uh, but if this would be clearly scientific without sort of politicking behind the scenes, uh, it would be even better. But then at the end of the day, you, you have also to reflect in terms of, of policies. I mean, you have scientific institutions and you, you have scientific programs and each and every country has different ways and, and spaces which are offered for science. And then you have a process where governments know that it will lead into a political process. So they start politicking at the beginning of the research chain. Uh, I mean, my take on that is the disadvantage is the le le less quality on science. The advantage is that through the process, uh, you have nevertheless corrective measures on all sides. And the, the end result might be pretty close to what you wanted to achieve. And you get an additional benefit of the process. You get, you get legitimacy again. You see, the, I, I see the ambivalence. I mean, having dealt with, with a sort of science and policy relation, we know that this is extremely delicate. Because scientists, scientists normally are extremely nervous when governments are in the room because they think they, they want to somehow 
to influence science. And, and basically governments get nervous when scientists are in the room because they feel pressured by facts. <laughs> so, that's how it is. But at the end of the day, you, I mean, it, I represent now a country at an institution. And then my, my take on that is, how do, you, do we produce a political output? And, and sooner or later, you have to bring these communities together. And the 2,500 scientists of the IPCC have the advantage of being 2,500. And so the, the, in, the factors of influence probably neutral, are, are mutually neutralizing themselves. So that at the end of the day, you have a fair chance to get close um, close to truth. I, I can't imagine much better. I can imagine maybe less cumbersome processes. I, it's just to, to have a comment on that, I mean, this is an expensive way of coming to the conclusion that, that the climate is uh -huh. uh, climate uh, is is falling apart, <laughs> uh, and, and the ice caps are melting, uh, and we have probably to find lighter ways in the future, in looking on on crucial strategic science input into political processes, because otherwise, uh, uh, might be too late. Yeah, too late. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of too late, actually, I wanted to talk a little bit about human rights and refugees and uh, the future problematics we're going to have starting in the South Pacific with the um, uh, dispersing of the uh, atolls that are there because, because of the rising of the sea levels. Um, certain nation states have already come forth and um, said that they will not accept any of the refugees, which violates international humanitarian law and the reformment uh, action. So I was wondering what your take is on that and what you foresee in the future. Should the ICRC come up with more international community of the Red Cross, come with more um, protocols? Do you think it is their place? Do you think there should be a new rule enforcing body for such things? What is your take on Well, as I'm here in a free institution, I will uh, speak my <laughs> mind freely. Uh, <coughs> Every tape recorder is off. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we we all know that climate change changes the security environment overall. If we have a broad understanding of of security, and it will it will change the type and the way of conflicts emerge and how they are fought and. Uh, they, they will change the issues uh, on which we are focusing on. Uh, as I said, we have focused on, on small arms and light weapons. We might focus on, on very different issues 5, 10, 15 years from now because climate change will induce uh, climate change-driven and resource-driven conflicts which will have different types and formats and actors and, and whatever. I mean, my problem with ICRC, to be very frank, is that uh, it, it's almost the same problem I have with, uh, uh, with uh, church law and the Vatican, is that uh, 
I, I'm not sure whether ICRC is looking at sufficiently innovative into what is coming up. I think we, we all know that every legal framework needs change as realities change. It doesn't necessarily need change to the worse, like, I mean, I have to be careful in, in mincing my words. Uh, that, that, I mean, the Gonzalez Memorandum also says because of new uh, realities we have to change international humanitarian law. I, I would agree, but maybe we have to change it to the better and not to the worse. So the question is, in what perspective do you want to look at new challenges and new, new legal framework? And I think there is value that the ICRC science countries who are interested to basically enhance the protection of people in conflict look at new formats and come up with ideas on how we deal with the legal frameworks under new conditions. And this is true with regard to the war on terror or, or conflicts emerging from climate, from climate change. And I think time is starting now where we have to look what are the types of conflict coming up? What are the issues which we might be confronted with? Uh, are we able to sustain the norms which have been devised for the 19th and 20th century conflict also in the 21st century's conflict? Do we need new norms? Do we need a reinterpretation of the existing norms? I mean, that's a debate we, we have to leave and we cannot just have the... the I mean, with all due respect, but uh, people like uh, uh, Gonzalez run the show and have basically and dominate the discourse uh, on these issues. So, uh, so should the UN be doing it? I think. I think the. I think the UN should, in part, do it. Yes, I think that's the place to do it because it's. Uh, you see. The UN and the ICRC is always a very difficult issue. If the ICRC is not doing it, I think the UN should do it because it's more important to do it than who, do it, who does it. So at the end of the day, uh, I cannot see the scope of, having, of being too sophisticated. We are looking at new realities, and these realities have, have, uh, must be dealt with. And, and I think the UN is the place for norm development uh, for situations as we uh, as they are unfolding. Uh, thank you. I'd like to take you back to an early comment you made, uh, distinguishing between your Switzerland's participation in the uh, United Nations and in the European Union, uh, and that is that I think we 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 step aside or we we uh, sidestep a, a dilemma that's developing in uh, international crisis intervention missions. I want to know your your prognosis, maybe strategy about this. That is, many of the the strategic initiatives that you enumerated in your participation in the UN from non-state actors, ICC, light weapons control, peacekeeping training, etc., are initiatives that the European Union will also trumpet as their proposals. Um, we also have, in the case, let's say, to make it specific, 
the current crisis in Darfur. Uh, African Union also at least nominally suggesting that it would like to promote such initiatives as well to the extent that it can. Um, as you model regional alliances around the globe, there is talk that ASEAN may develop further institutional structures that would do similar proposals, etc. So we could multiply the level, the, the number of supranational institutions that may be running parallel initiatives to be a devil's advocate for a moment, um, do you see the danger of uh, overlapping conversation that leads to something like paralysis or, or uh, sidestepping responsibility, let's say in the case of Darfur with the critical acclaim, critical voices about that, non-intervention? What, what, no, who's I think organizing I, this? That, that's, a, that's a very serious problem, yes. Uh, I think you... We, we have gone over the past 10-15 years a little bit through the motions. We had the end of the Cold War sort of global multilateralism developing in the 1990s and, uh, and, and into the 21st century and little attention by this development paid to regional and national specificities. And there was a counter-reaction where regional integration processes started to pick up some of the global issues and see how do we implement, uh, deal with those issues at the regional level and we don't want to, to go global and we don't want others to mingle with our region or country. And this has developed, I think, in in an interesting new relationship between the United Nations, regional actors, national actors, and that we are far away of uh, having a clear vision on how to organize this sort of, in these intermediate and global levels. And I, I would very much agree that there is willingly or unwillingly sometimes the tendency to, uh, whenever you don't like uh, an effort, you just kick it upstairs or downstairs. Mm -hmm. And this is happening between the United Nations and regional actors. Uh, if uh, the UN does not like a crisis because they see the Security Council is split, this is messy, uh, we can't find the peacekeepers, we don't have the money, uh, the U.S. and the Chinese uh, have different positions. We kick it to the African Union and praise all the advantages of regionalism. Africa should can much better deal with a conflict on on its own. Uh, I mean, it's called passing the buck, right? That's right. That, that, that's one discourse, and I, I I would say that unfortunately in Darfur that's what happened, and. Uh, I think it, it happened deliberately. Mm -hmm. And it happened in the full knowledge that the Africans would be unable to deal seriously with Darfur. I, I mean, the good thing about the story is you don't get off the hook. Because at the end of the day, a couple of months later, you see that unfortunately 
the African Union is not being able to deal with an issue, the issue comes back. Uh, you have to deal with an even bigger problem. Uh, you have an even bigger dilemma to face. So, I mean, my, my hope would be that as we develop policies with the problems which are emerging, that sooner or later we have a little bit more sophisticated approaches on how to do this. I mean, you can't delegate authorities and problems to regions if those regions have no capacities. Uh, if you bring it with capacity, you can eventually have a better deal at the end of the day. And I think if, if we achieve at the end of the day finally something on Darfur, it will be, be because there is some learning process that the, the, the big ones can't just steal themselves out of the room. They are there, they, are, they have influence, they have power, but the regionals have as well. And you have to see who does what best on, on, on which level. So what, an intervention on that, that's not an argument against regionalism per se. It's much more an argument about an honest scrutiny of where capacity lies yeah. and an honest conversation between international, regional and national. Yeah, okay. yeah because I mean, uh, I mean regionalism is, is nothing is nothing bad. It, it, it happens. It's good that it, it is happening. Huh? Uh, I think it is, it is normal that countries start to look at their immediate neighbors and neighborhood and see how they organize their lives in their immediate neighborhood. And this, this is institution building in, in each and every place at different paces. Mm -hmm. Thank I you. saw a question down here, I think. No. Overtaken by events, John. First of all, let me congratulate Switzerland as a government for the way it's dealt with North Korea. I'm serious, it's one of the few governments that's understood the, uh, the difference between sanctioning actions and sanctioning people. You, you support people in a way, I, I helped you uh, convince the North Korean government in 1985 that they ought to have goats. <clears throat> and the uh, first farm I visited in, in 2003 was a Swiss goat farm. <laughs> I'd like to ask a question, though, on a very different level. Uh, I've been involved for a number of years, so I'm trying to get, uh, trying to build on the fact that we have increasingly so uh, international connectivity. Uh, telecommunications, uh, the process of uh, building uh, networks is going with lightning speed, and you have basically now global coverage on, on cell phones. On, a lot of things that we used to have to cover by satellite, and so things are happening. And one of the one of the problems that you see is how do you use that fundamental connectivity in the world to uh, to, to build uh, the, the kind of consensus and conflict resolution and the sort of thing you've been talking about. And we tried this in some success in the area of health uh, with the World Health Organization, working prim primarily on the questions of. Uh, how do you upgrade the, uh, the what is the one international system that works, which is the which is flu now. The reason you have a flu shot is somebody reports at a low level and all the way up through to a, to a lab somewhere they get the, they get the uh, they get the virus and then you get a flu shot on that. So uh, there was a there was an attempt to try to build that system into an international report. 
reporting system that would be much more sophisticated. And if you've got that, then you can get the things you need. For example, on on, uh, on reporting on uh, natural disasters, you could have you could have had that in place with the very small tweaks of the communication system. You could have gotten people to report on the tsunami in time. You could have gotten on, on, on earthquake reporting in, in band, got people responding more quickly, and on and on. And now we have things like like, uh, like the avian flu and so on. The problem, of course, is that the, the World Health Organization is one of the most poorly funded organizations in, in the whole repertoire of, of institutions under the, under the UN. Uh, how can we bridge that gap between this extraordinary capability we're now developing in your businesses and in your, your world of, of, of commerce to build it in the, in the world that affects things like consensus building and international communications with scientific flows and all of that. Because you have very few places you can intervene in this process, and that, in my judgment, is one of them. Well, I, thanks a lot for the question. It's actually one of my uh, my favorite issues at the present moment, uh, uh, trying to, to push the IT and network agenda uh, at, at the United Nations. In terms of the precise question, the resources, uh, I mean, I'm rather confident that this is one of the areas where you can convince governments to invest more. And that it might be one of the few consensual areas where we might uh, have a, a, a consensus to to really invest over the next uh, over the next few years, and I think the World Health Organization, even uh, uh, the flu network, and also the reaction to avian flu, for instance, has been a good example encouraging other areas of the UN to look at possible future emulations of of, of this model. Uh, I'm, I'm at, at the present moment uh, working on environmental governance, uh, chairing a, a working group of the General Assembly on environmental governance. This is typically an area as well, where which is uh, poorly networked and where a little bit of investment in IT technology and communication, connectivity and interoperability of the different actors uh, would contribute a lot in making the international system work better. You have to overcome a couple of resistances always. Uh, you have again the fact that, that World Health Organization has been much easier to tap into the different professional networks. When it goes into other areas, you are again in the state, non-state uh, relationship. How to build a platform where uh, the NGO, business, uh, science communities and states are somehow on an equal footing integrated in a network and exchanging information. So it's still a delicate political question, not for Switzerland, but for, for some countries this is a major sort of a, a, a political question. But I, I would be rather hopeful that uh, the new Secretary General has understood that this is a an, an issue of strategic importance. And I would expect him to be much more forthcoming in pushing those agendas over the next few years. I, 
I, I've just been with him uh, on, on his first trip to Switzerland and we, we, we had a discussion on that. I mean, he will probably nominate soon a chief information technology officer in his office in order to look at exactly building up those processes and then we will have to play the politics of it uh, and because only the politics of it will bring the resources to, to the table. But uh, I think the problem is understood. The good example of WHO and its reaction capacities is understood. When I spoke to the SG, I told him this is a, 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 an excellent way also to get out of these very superficial structural discussion in, in the UN system. It doesn't matter where you are. You have to be on the net uh, if you want to solve a problem in the future. So the whole question of building organizations and structures is, is rapidly diminishing, and, and I think he sees this as an opportunity. I can give the name of one person who's really critical. He works with WHO, who's now head of uh, infectious diseases, and he, he, he's worked mostly in Africa, but he, uh, David Heyman, he was here a little while ago, but he is absolutely first class and understands how this kind of network can be built into yeah. a much broader base that other people can tap into for other reasons. Well, Ambassador, you have, uh, you personify the voice of savvy incrementalism, if yeah, I that's can right. say so, yeah. all driven by a, a core optimism on human rights. So uh, I feel that we're in good hands at the, with the Human Rights Council, uh, with Switzerland there at the UN table, and uh, really believe that with the voice of reason that you, that you portray, it's a steady, steady drumbeat of uh, just keeping, keeping at the game, and you clearly are always seeking to include countries in discussions. Uh, acutely aware at all times, I suspect, of the political limitations that, uh, that are part of the human rights, the human rights mm -hmm. process. So we thank you for coming to Stanford. Thank you very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.